Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Kendall Fielpello, and today I'm joined by the University of Southampton Vice-Chancellor, Professor Mark E. Smith, who, for new students who aren't aware or for, or for those who have perhaps forgotten, was appointed to the position in October of 2019. Professor Smith, welcome back to, your, to Surge Radio for your second interview with us. How are you doing? Yeah, it's great to be here and thanks for the invitation. Uh, doing very well. Uh, thank you. Although, uh, obviously, as for all of us, uh, under very uh, unexpected and uh, quite difficult circumstances, but nevertheless, uh, great to be here. We have had quite a year indeed, and I'm, I'm sure I speak on behalf of many students when I say it's a pleasure to take this time to, uh, to ask you some very important questions. So to begin, could you tell us what you've been up to for what can I what I can only assume has been quite a very busy past 12 months? Yeah, it has been very busy, but it's been busy for huge amounts of people with the amount of change. It's difficult to know what to, to say when you say what have you been up to, because uh, we could go on for the whole interview with just that. But you would be very interested. However, I think two or three key things. One is uh, the role, I mean, and I guess a lot of your colleagues uh, won't know exactly what the role of the Vice-Chancellor is. So the Vice-Chancellor effectively uh, plays the leadership role of the senior, in the senior team. Um, and therefore, that senior team uh, has had a, a lot of work to do to be able to understand what decisions need to be made to uh, adapt the university. Now, of course, that then requires a lot of people across the university to do things. But that's taken up a lot more time. The kind of day-to-day -day running of the university has taken up a lot more time than it would do in a normal year because, you know, obviously, normally it's well-grooved. Um, so that's been one of the things. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that as we were going into March last year, because, as you say, I'd been in post six months at that point, we were going to launch a consultation over... In fact, we had just launched a consultation over the new strategy. Now, that became, of course, uh, of secondary relevance. Uh, but one of the other things that I've been doing in that time is we, we've now created what we call the bridging strategy, which is a document which sets out the framework in which the university will operate uh, up until the end uh, of uh, this calendar year. Uh, and, and it was meant to you know, be hopeful and forward-looking, uh, but with a strategy that was relevant to the very different times that we were finding ourselves in. So there have been two of the key things, running the university on a more day-to-day -day basis and uh, getting the bridging strategy. So hopefully there's a framework which people will see the direction forward for the university. Do you think that our university has managed the coronavirus situation well in terms of the move to online teaching and learning, working for home, for working from home, that sort of thing? Or, or rather, what, how has the university managed it well? So I, I, it's difficult to be um, completely objective in answering that question because you'd like to think it has. Um, uh, and, and, and I think there is evidence that uh, things uh, have been done quite well. We'd always, you, because it's a very rapidly changing situation, there are, you know, you, there's always, when you look back, there are things that you could have done better. Um, but how many, how many big mistakes have we made? I would say relatively few. And if I compare to how the university has managed the remarkable uh, effort uh, of uh, uh, staff and students, uh, first of all, in the very rapid change back in March, and then the preparation for the autumn term, I think, you know, if I look, I'm very proud of the way the institutions... Are... Now, I'm not sitting here thinking, oh, you know, there's lots of things that we should have done. I, I think it, it, as an organisation, it did pretty well. That's not being complacent because, again, I understand how much it's affected people. 
However, let's give some evidence to back that statement up rather than it being kind of, I would say, if you look at the autumn term in particular, when we were allowed to uh, 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 undertake a blended approach to learning, I think that if you look at the infection rate uh, that happened in the, in, in the uh, Southampton population, both the staff and the students, and particularly because of the way we had the saliva testing, uh, I think for a university of our size and density of population, the way that uh, the whole population responded to obeying the rules, as it were, I thought was tremendous. So our infection, I mean, every, every morning I click, on a, I click on a website to see what the new infection, and particularly in the autumn, I kind of opened it up at about eight o'clock every morning, hoping there was not this massive surge, because as you well know, there were some universities which had absolutely gigantic numbers of infections. That didn't happen at Southampton. So I would, I would say that's concrete evidence that uh, the university uh, uh, managed it quite well. But the university meaning the whole of the community, because that required people to cooperate and obey the rules. And I have to say that a, a very great majority of the whole population, both staff and students, uh, were, were really very uh, you know, uh, uh, disciplined through that period, which allowed us to operate, I thought, quite well in that time. The UCU raised concerns as close to the beginning of, of the autumn term as the 19th of September about student welfare and that of the wider community that you mentioned regarding the return to the university in the preparations they thought were inadequate for this return to be safe. So I have to ask, was the social face-to-face -face, uh, sort of engagement largely of clubs and society events uh, and, and extracurricular activities as well as a small number of, well, a, a, a relatively small number of in-person lectures and seminars. Was this prioritised to keep students feeling as though they're getting value for money over the very real risk of catching and spreading the coronavirus? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the key point there is you have to ask, answer the fundamental question. Uh, does social contact help and improve both the experience and the well-being of individuals. And uh, I would contend that it does. And we've heard stories of you know, people being isolated as uh, uh, creating very significant difficulties for, for people. So being able to have a sense of being physically part of a community, we thought was, uh, we thought was very important. And going back to, to what I said uh, uh, earlier, uh, the infection rate on our campus was incredibly low. It was much lower than in the general population, and it was much lower than most other universities. So uh, it, in some ways, it was incredibly safe, relatively, to be, to be on, our, on our campus. And, uh, and I think that, to the, you know, in terms of looking at where we ended up at the end, of, we've still only had, a, you know, even now uh, across the, the population, a very low infection rate. Uh, and in fact, uh, recent statistics only this week from the Office for National Statistics showed that uh, uh, in-person face-to-face teaching of um, uh, the uh, higher education uh, profession was amongst the was in the lowest quartile of any job across the whole of uh, the UK economy. So I think I think you know, all of the evidence says it was uh, one of the safest things to do, given the circumstances. So just as a follow-up question, was this done to get students to justify to themselves traveling uh, across the country during a pandemic to come back to campuses 
to get them signed and trapped into rental contracts that many students right now are regretting um, and to keep them from deferring from the university for an, an extra year until things settle down to sort of keep as much sort of tu tuition money and rent money from students as possible? Well, well I, I think the, the short answer is uh, elements of the question that you've just asked uh, depended on you knowing what was going to happen, uh, particularly in the January period onwards. If, if we'd have been operating in January to now as we had October to, the, uh, uh, to December, I don't think you'd be asking me that question. Because if you, if you took a census of the student population, and we did, as you know, we took a, we took a snapshot in December through a pulse survey, they thought that the experience they were getting, although much more limited than in normal circumstances, actually was pretty satisfactory. No, I mean, of course, there are students who didn't think that. But the, but the point was, at, at that point in time, no one would have questioned that decision. Okay. And of course, then the pandemic uh, went into the third wave and we went into the, sorry, the second wave and the third lockdown. And of course, we've had to change very significantly. And that, of course, changed the perspective. And it's easy being clever after the event, but... There was no sense in which that early decision was other than being focused on trying to develop, deliver the best experience we could under the circumstances that pertained at that time, i.e. in September and, and, and October. And people coming back and being part of a community always felt uh, a key priority for us. My next question is, what are the most significant cuts that the university has made throughout this period? Well, what we've done is... Oh, okay. So the strict answer to your question is we've deferred uh, we've deferred expenditure on those things which could be deferred uh, and, and have the least notice. So, for example, in, in strictly in terms of money, uh, long term maintenance has been one of the uh, major uh, 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 kind of cutbacks. And you can get away with that for a couple of years. So, uh, in, it, you know, if, if we had to do that for a few years, it would not have any direct impact on the day-to-day -day running of the institution. So it's something you don't, it's something you don't really see in the front line. So that, that's been, it's been things behind the scenes that have been uh, most uh, uh, kind of cut because the priority, I was very clear back last summer that we needed to steer a very careful path between making sure that we were financially viable, which we are, and, and therefore not overreacting too early uh, and allowing allowing most uh, things to carry on as normal, or in fact, in a couple of things we needed to boost. So, for example, uh, like uh, uh, student hardship funds and uh, digital support for uh, uh, students. And we can go, we can go, we can we can carry on like that for a short period, but not. So, what I'm trying to say is, there wasn't much frontline activity that was significantly uh, significantly cut back on. And in fact. We obviously had to do a bit more uh, frontline activity through uh, some of that expenditure that would have been long-term maintenance got deferred to making, you know, social distancing, modifying spaces, one-way systems, all of that type of thing. What about the over 300 members of staff who took voluntary redundancies before Christmas? So what's the question? Was, is that not one of the significant cuts that was made? Yeah, it, 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 it certainly is a saving. Um, and How do you justify uh, it, it? Well, it's justified because we need to balance the budget. And the, uh, this year, we're, we're still going to run a deficit budget this year. But that's my point. 
we uh, in that I was very clear that we should not overreact. Uh, and the way we decided not to overreact was by setting a budget that uh, for this year, hopefully only, runs at a slight deficit. So it was the minimum we could uh, uh, kind of get away with in the sense of not having to cut even deeper. Uh, so it obviously that, that is a, I mean, to be fair, not much of that saving hits this year because obviously uh, you have to pay the redundancy cost of those individuals. And of course it was voluntary. Uh, so we've had no compulsory redundancies at this university, unlike some universities. Um, and uh, no, it is absolutely is a, is a significant saving, but uh, it's one that uh, allowed us to, to strike that balance between being prudent and not overreacting and making sure the university uh, can continue to be uh, financially, uh, you know, financially robust. Okay. You are, you chair the board of the universities and colleges employers association, the UCEA, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And that board, uh, that association is responsible for the pay and working conditions of university staff across the sector, which means that you were one of the negotiators when our lecturers went on strike last March against cuts to the USS pension scheme. Um, so my question is, why isn't the UCEA pushing, or, or, or at the very least pushing harder, for funding from central government to lessen the kind of cuts and, and redundancies, be, be they voluntary, that universities like ours are having to make? Well, I think all, all universities, uh, I, I don't think the... Uh, uh, I mean, there's one thing you've got to be very clear about what you just said, is that you, you linked... Uh, you link the UCEA as a body, the Employers Association as a body, with pensions. Uh, UCEA has nothing to do with pensions. Uh, pensions are negotiated by UUK, so that's a, that's a separate discussion. It's not in the remit of the Employers Association. You can argue whether it should be or not, but that the way it is at the moment is it is it is certainly is not. So UCEA has no jurisdiction over uh, uh, pensions. But uh, the second part of your the second part yeah. of your question though was. And we, we did, there were joint statements issued actually back in, in August where we joint with uh, union colleagues pointing out to government uh, what the likely funding situations could result in and uh, kind of asking in broad terms, was it possible uh, for, more, for more support? I mean, the, the, the problem is the government's in quite a difficult, I'm not an apologist for the government, the, the, the government's in quite a difficult position with all of the calls on the funding for uh, 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 supporting jobs in a whole range of sectors, making sure that one doesn't appear to make special pleading, I think is, is was very important. So making the case that uh, the funding of universities uh, could do with extra support, but at the same time, not over-egging that case so that it appears like special pleading, I think was very important because obviously the whole country and if you look at the amount of extra expenditure the government has uh, undertaken across all sectors, you know, making sure that uh, uh, we were supported. And there were various schemes like uh, the furlough scheme, which some universities took advantage of, the, the PhD funding support that's come forward from uh, uh, government. Uh, that there has been some levels. We, we would like, we'd like more. We've made cases for more. Uh, but at the same time, not exaggerating that case against the urgency of other sectors. So it's about... It it's about striking a balance. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, in, in the sense of, and goes back to the point of 
the finances of the university in, you know, the finances of the university uh, are reasonably robust, but we have to be careful. Uh, but at the same time, there are other sectors that are much more precarious than we are and not wanting to be seen to, as I say, make a, a, an exaggerated case, I think is very important. Okay. Uh, so on the topic of university finances, the office of the vice chancellor has a basic salary of £287,000 a year, which is a 32% reduction compared to Professor Sir Christopher Snowden's eye-watering salary of £423,000, who at the time was one of the highest paid vice chancellors in the country. This made headlines in national newspapers. Uh, last year, you took home £291,000 from the University of Southampton. Uh, and on top of that, you took home £57,000 for the three months you were still Vice-Chancellor at Lancaster University, which makes your total salary for last year um, £348,000, which um, is not quite, but nearing 10 times as much as the average lecturer at this university. How do you justify taking home that amount of money? That, well, first of all, I don't recognise the numbers um, because I Please certainly... correct me if I'm wrong. I certainly didn't. I mean, you, 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 your, your first number was correct. It's absolutely correct. The basic salary at Southampton is two is two hundred eighty-seven thousand. Absolutely no argument about that. But the way you've got these extra numbers, which you added on for different parts of the year, I have never earned more than a basic salary of two hundred eighty-seven thousand any one calendar year. Okay, so uh, it, it has not gone above that number. Uh, so uh, I don't recognise that number. But of course, there are other um, elements to uh, my remuneration, which include, of course, just like any other member of staff at the university, I get a contribution towards my pension. But that's exactly in the same ratio as, uh, as uh, any uh, other um, member of, uh, of staff. So what was, the, what was the second part of your question? Sorry. Um, how do you justify taking home such a large amount of money when um, staff are facing cuts? Uh, well, two things. That's right. So the, the the two thing, or two, there are two parts to the end of your question. The ratio, uh, uh, you, you quote a ratio of ten to one. I think the annual Not quite, report has the ratio. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the ratio is actually nearer eight to one. Um, so, uh, and it's all in the annual report. You can just read it. The number in the annual report is accurate. Um, uh, and then you ask, how do I justify it? Well, it's, that's not for me to justify. That's for the remuneration committee to justify because they determine my salary. However, uh, I'm not judging your question. Uh, it's, you know, the type of job I have, it's not out of line with, the, uh, with, with that type of role across any university. It's, it's actually towards the lower end of Russell Group uh, vice chancellors. Uh, I mean, if I was right at the upper end of it, I think that it's a, it's a legitimate question. Um, but I think it, you know, there's been a very careful determination of what the going rate is for that role. You wouldn't expect me to say to a lecturer, uh, why don't you take half of what the going rate is for a lecturer? You wouldn't ask that question, would you? I'm sure I wouldn't. No, absolutely. OK. Um, do you think that staff feel listened to? Um, I think the honest answer is it's variable. Uh, in big organisations, there's always a question of how much listening is, is done. I think if you asked in the pulse survey, because we did a staff pulse survey as well, I think 
there were elements of people saying, you know, we want to be heard more. But having said that, there were also elements in the staff survey which felt there'd been good communication with the university and that the university had responded. I mean, there was one question which stood out in my mind. It said, uh, has the university allowed me to be flexible in the way I work under the conditions of, and there was a very positive, again, there were some people who didn't feel that was true, but the bulk of the uh, colleagues across the university felt that was, that was true. So we can always do more listening. I think we, we do try and listen. Uh, being able to communicate that better sometimes uh, uh, could be important. But overall, I think, I think we do, uh, and we'll try and do more. Okay. Um, so the UCU have said that staff have found out, in some cases, after students or through students, about important information. For example, announcements regarding online teaching. And they've said that when raising issues or out and concerns that they're told that a decision has already made by higher ups um, or that they're using the incorrect channels or have been otherwise disregarded. Do you think there's a communication problem? Um, I think, well, I mean, I mean, your uh, the colleagues who are giving you that information uh, can only say how they see it. So uh, it's unfortunate if they see it that way. Over that, what I would, what I would say, I mean, and, and, and I have to take it face value what they're saying. However, what I would uh, kind of add to that is we absolutely recognise that um, uh, communication was important. The number of meetings that were held with senior colleagues uh, and unions throughout the, throughout the period of the pandemic has increased very significantly. There have been very uh, uh, regular meetings. Uh, and I'm quite surprised that there, there are cases in which that claim uh, uh, is true. Uh, however, I can't categorically claim it was never true um, because I don't know the specific instances that are being uh, referred to. But the commitment of colleagues was, I mean, the commitment of colleagues was to make sure that all the communication for, uh, including those with our union colleagues, were actually uh, uh, as informed as possible. I mean, things were very fast moving, of course, at periods through the, uh, particularly, I would say in the period March, uh, uh, to June, July last year were very fast moving and rapidly changing. But there was a commitment to have re much more regular meetings and those meetings have happened regularly and have been well attended. The Students' Union has a chair at, um, has a seat at the U University Council. Why don't staff unions? The, because the, uh, the, I mean, the, 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 if you look across the sector, it's not very, it, it's not kind of very common for that to happen. And the staff, the, U, the unions, I mean, the, there, are, there are staff seats at the, um, at the uh, council table via the Senate. The union has every right to have members on the Senate and those senators have every right equal to any other. So we treat all our staff equally. And, and therefore, you know, there is staff representation via the Senate. Uh, and that seems to me to be a perfectly satisfactory way of getting the staff voice uh, uh, on the uh, uh, on the university council. So a uh, question on a similar but different topic. Um, after the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent Black Lives Matter protests around the world yep. during the summer, the university, like many, reaffirmed its commitment to rooting out ongoing inequality and prejudices, not just in society, but at this institution. According to the Sotten tab at the time when the university issued its statement, students said that actions speak louder than words. 
job cuts throughout the pandemic are hitting marginalized groups like women and black members of staff the hardest. Currently, the I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the University of East London is trying to make redundant one of the only black woman professors in the country. Could you tell us uh, as vice chancellor, but also as chair of the board of the ECEA, uh, what the picture looks like in terms of job cuts hitting marginalized people across the higher education sector? Yeah, so the, the analysis on the uh, uh, equality impact of uh, job cuts uh, is being looked at uh, very carefully. There, there is evidence. Uh, immediately, the, the, the thing is that the different demographics map onto the different types of jobs a little bit differently. Um, I'm not absolutely uh, clear on what the uh, latest updates on those uh, those figures are, but there is there is very careful monitoring of that. And here at the university, we've looked at, at, at that carefully as well. I think I think. Once we come out the other side of the pandemic, we have to understand really what the what, what the impact has uh, has been. But I, I think the, the one thing I would say at kind of high level is that there is a conscious. If you'd have been, if we'd have been having this conversation a few years ago, I don't think there would have been this level of scrutiny and um, uh, attention uh, as quite rightly should be paid to it as is being paid. So so people are people are are conscious before the event rather than after the event. And I think that uh, it's been clearly, I mean, it's clearly been seen, for example, that we know that the way the pandemic affects people, you know, in its actual physical effect is different on different uh, parts of the demographic. So that it's being carefully monitored and there will be, there will be reports coming out on just being clear about what effect it's had. Okay, let's talk about the impact on the student experience and yep. uh, hopefully the possibility of reduced fees. Students United Against Fees is a growing national campaign which our very own Susu, uh, indeed the union president Olivia Reid, is playing a key part. Students United Against Fees wants the government to give students money back for the fact that they aren't getting what they were promised this year. What are your thoughts on these kind of campaigning efforts that our students union has voted to support? Yeah, so the first thing to say is uh, I, I'm well aware and really have every you know can understand the fact that this is not the year that most students kind of signed up to and the way it's affected the direct education and the broader student experience you know no one can deny that the, the question then is uh, what are the knock-on uh, consequences of that I'd say two or three things in response to that and first of all you know uh, I understand the right of people to campaign for it and, and understand that campaign um, the first point is um, the first point is to say that if you look at the way my colleagues have been responding, uh, the way that a whole range of services have moved to do you know, online, etc., much of the university cost base has been, you know, has been ongoing, irrespective of whether the students are physically here or not, and their ability to access that. Uh, we've tried to make it as um, uh, as seamless as possible uh, to online, so things like mental health uh, provision and things like that. Uh, so many of the things that we needed to do, in fact, we've had to up them, but a bit. So many of the costs are there. That's the first point. The, the second point is, um, you you were clearly um, worried uh, 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 or concerned, perhaps the right word, concerned by in some of your early questions about some of the cuts the university has had to make. So. 
obviously, if the if if a re, if a rebate in fees is successful at some stage, then presumably that worry on your part's gone away, because that there's only one consequence of uh, reducing the fees, and that's further cuts. And yet you were worried about them. So I, 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 there's a slight inconsistency in your position there. Uh, and then the the third point to make, and you you made this in your your, your uh, initial comments, is it's a question for government because government provides the fees. The discussion should be between and 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 I'd also hate the situation where just because you went to University X rather than University Y, you got a you got a different deal on the fee. So therefore, it's a, it seems to me that that is absolutely a, a, a government-led decision, and, and we'll see where they end up on that. International students, in particular, pay the most in tuition fees, often around or over double what UK students pay. Um, and SUSU published today, in fact, the result of an all-student vote. I'm not sure whether they put this to the university yet, but 98% of students who voted voted overwhelmingly in support of SUSU lobbying the university to reduce international students' tuition fees. So why are international fees so high and should they be reduced? Right. Well, the first thing is why are they so high is because they more accurately reflect the, uh, the costs of running the university. Now, to be absolutely clear on that, um, what I mean by the costs, that when you, when you have any organisation, the costs are the direct costs of uh, what you do, plus the costs of being able to invest in the future. Um, and that's what fees from overseas students uh, allow us to do. They allow us to pay for the direct you know, uh, uh, costs that they incur and then help us to invest in the institution uh, more broadly and, 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 and invest in things which then go on to improve the student experience, uh, etc. So uh, I think, you know, that, 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 that's why they're higher is because they, there is an element of which they allow you to pay for the here and now and for the future, which any organisation uh, uh, needs, uh, needs to do. What was the second part of your question? Sorry, I forgot. Uh, should they be reduced? Oh, yeah, okay. So the, the, question, the question there is, is the same point as, as I just, just made, made to you. Um, and it's a question of what are you paying for as well? Um, uh, I think there's a, very, there's a very important question of there's the, uh, there's the experience, of course, that you would have desired. But in the end, are you still going to end up with a degree with uh, the learning outcomes that were envisaged at the start, maybe not quite the way they were envisaged. And does it get you a degree that has the same currency, the same value as the degree that you signed up for? I think if the answer to those two questions is, is yes, then what it means is the university, as best it can under these circumstances, is, uh, is delivering on uh, uh, its side of the bargain. So it makes it it makes it uh, difficult to, uh, I mean, I understand in the sense of the experience has been below what they uh, anticipated, but that's different from saying, what are you actually getting and what are you paying for? Okay, let's move on to talking about mental health. Um, yep. Would you identify the university as a structural cause of mental ill health? What I mean is, yes, we all know that mental ill health occurs due to chemical imbalances in the brain, but if such imbalances are endemic of 
students being overworked and perhaps undervalued by the university, is the university then a structural cause? Um, can I, I mean, you're asking me the question, but I need to understand something. So I need to ask you a question back. What is the evidence that students think they're undervalued? So students say that they're sitting in their rooms uh, for weeks on end uh, with nothing to do and the same high expectations of academic form performance. Okay. Okay. So I think, well, that, that, thank you for that clarification. That, 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 that allows me, I think, to answer it in a more meaningful way. I, mean, I think the key is um, the whole sets of um, structures we have in place, like the personal academic tutor system, like, uh, uh, student support services they should be there so if a student if a student is sitting there and they're feeling like that uh, there should be mechanisms for them to be able to reach out and try and get the support that they need now if what you're telling me is they feel they can't do that then what I would uh, I'd need to know is why they feel they can't do it because as far as you know I can see from where I sit those structures are in place there to help support them now what i can't tell of course is on an individual basis whether uh, uh that is working in every case so if it isn't working then we need to know about it because it should be working because we're absolutely clear i mean one of the things i tell one of the things i tell i've told people who directly work for me in my office is that in a way you need to communicate although it's a kind of virtual communication you need to communicate more than normal in a way to make sure that people realize there are people you can talk to that you are still part of a community and one of the feelings i get is perhaps that hasn't permeated you know as, as, as far as as far as one one would like but there should be mechanisms there so that they do feel heard if they don't of course i'm very sorry for that but it need you know we need to know where those cases are and how we can help them okay i mean can i say something else okay yeah uh, is, 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 is there something, uh, and I haven't, I haven't said this directly to students, but I have said this directly to staff, and it's something that we really mean, um, which is, is do, do what you can, you know, and let people know what you can, and let people know about your circumstances, because you, you can't assume, you, you know nothing about other people's circumstances, and, but the only way you, I mean, if you're in a, if you're in a kind of, um, you know, tutor student situation, you absolutely should be proactive in, 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 in trying to solicit that information. But at the same time, if you feel you're not getting through, you, you must feel it's an open environment whereby you can communicate your difficulties because it's only in that situation that people can then start modifying what their expectations are of you. Okay. On some courses, more than 50% of students have submitted, uh, have, have re requested extensions, but no alterations were made to the moderation process. So staff essentially had less time to mark uh, and, and, and moderate work in, in order to squeeze in this extra capacity. So since it seems like staff don't have the capacity to look at thousands of individual cases of um, students saying that their circumstances in, need to be looked at. Why is there no uh, institution-wide no detriment policy or, or something to, to that effect? Yeah, so th th again, there's two, I think there's two parts to your question. Uh, and the first part, um, I think you were saying 
that there were periods where students would like extensions, but they're not being granted. Is that what you were saying? What I was trying to say is that um, more students are submitting extension requests, but staff don't have the capacity to um, handle them as, as well as marking and moderating work. Okay, okay, that's what I thought. Okay, so, so that uh, is something I hadn't heard before. So I was certainly, that's what I thought you said, but I just wanted to be clear. Sure. Uh, I'll certainly go away and ask, so uh, why they can't be processed? I mean, I can understand about workload and all those things, but I need to get to understand clearly before I can could answer that part of the question. Your, your, your second part of the question, though, is much more generic, which is the question about the, the, the no detriment policy. Um, I think it's important to understand two things. One is that, of course, last year, when we went into the pandemic in, in March 2020, there was a very rapid situation, a very rapid decision to go to a straight no detriment policy. This year, the situation's a bit different for a whole range of reasons. And it, and it is not as easy to implement the same policy this year as it was last year. And if you want to, I can explain why. But the, uh, it, it's, it, it's um, you know, it, 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 there, are, there are a range of reasons. However, the key, key point for your listeners is that universities are very flexible because of their autonomy at being able to take into account circumstances on an individual basis to understand how things should be considered. And therefore, I think that's the most appropriate way because different people, it was going back to the point with your last question, different people have been affected very differently uh, by the pandemic. And therefore having a blanket rule would be, uh, would be inappropriate. Uh, but if there were no other mechanisms for being able to take into account uh, the circumstances individuals find themselves in, then I could understand some of the, you know, the level of angst around this. However, there are those mechanisms there and they will be used to their full extent. And universe, I mean, it's a number of years since I've taught directly, but, you know, I've had my time as a, a chief examiner and a head of an exam board and all that sort of thing. Uh, you know, we were very good at being able to calibrate and take individual circumstances uh, into account because we know that people are going to be affected differently. Okay. So it's been a year since the University and Students Union released the Joint Sustainability Statement. Would you be able to briefly, if possible, um, update us on this progress and, and whether or not it's sort of taken a back seat? Yeah. So um, uh, thanks for asking that question, because I can absolutely say it hasn't taken a back seat. And one of the things we decided last summer was to push forward with the new sustainability strategy when it perhaps would have been easier to say, uh, it's too difficult to do alongside all the other things. So we've pushed on with that pretty rapidly. Um, and as you're aware, that was published last October. It's got six uh, goals in it. And I think some of those goals are quite ambitious. There's a whole range of uh, things they're going to hold us uh, to account to. So I think rather than taking a back seat, I think it's it's up there in the front seat with a number of other things. But it certainly is up there. That's very good to hear. Um so the government has recently announced plans for a free speech champion for UK universities. Do you think that um, our university is an institution of free speech or censorship? Uh, well, uh, I read but with a lot of interest the Secretary of State's statement from last week and the letter which was sent to all vice chancellors. There was interestingly in it uh, something called Appendix B, which although he's talking about the legislation he may bring forward, 
His letter also asked vice chancellors to kind of run a ruler over where they thought they already were with the kind of principles. I think we've done that. We've done that very quickly. We're doing a little bit more detail to say now, but I think that uh, Southampton actually is a pretty uh, open uh, uh, community in terms of speech. Obviously, there are, there are certain lines you can't step over as prescribed by law. But within those boundaries, I think the university is a, is a pretty open environment. If you had a crystal ball, what would you like to see? What are your hopes for the future of the university in terms of like the end of the pandemic, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I, well, well, first of all, I am relatively optimistic that things will happen reasonably quickly. Uh, but what I'd really like for the university is uh, to come back stronger than ever and have learned, I think, some of the way, some of the things we've learned, that the fantastic um, steps forward in blended approaches to learning, the ability to do some things online in a mixed environment, the way we've learned to uh, carry out some of our back office function uh, remotely. I think we've learned a lot. We've been forced to learn a lot very quickly, and I'd hate to unlearn that. Um, and therefore, I think there are some very um, there are some very positive lessons. And the way the university responded in general, as I said at the kind of my opening answers, showed that a really high quality research led university can make a real difference to society. If you think about the saliva test, if you think about the nasal um, spray, if you think about uh, the uh, perso hoods, you think about drone delivery, there's huge amounts that we've done under difficult circumstances that have made a difference to society. So I look forward to the university playing an ever stronger role, uh, uh, you know, as a thought leader uh, uh, for, 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 you know, in really good things. I've mentioned Crushhampton before, which is our anonymous forums Facebook page where students can submit things online. Um, there is something that's come up on Crushhampton that's particularly caught my eye, which is about um, the... the there's no sort of institutional regulation uh, against dead naming, dead naming students who are trans or non-binary who go by a different name that isn't their birth name. Is this something that's on your radar? I have to confess, I don't know what dead naming is. Okay, um, so dead naming is using the incorrect name for a person, specifically using the birth name of a trans or non-binary person when they go by a, a, a different name. Okay, so it is. It, it, I wasn't aware of that. Um, it hasn't been brought up with me, uh, but I'm certainly happy to go. That's the one of the great joys of my job. You go away and find out a lot of things about uh, things you didn't know about previously. So if it's if it's an issue that's uh, circulating in our community, uh, we definitely, I definitely need to know about it. I will go away and do my homework on it. Okay. And final question. Do you like the pop band One Direction? Are you a bit of a directioner? I'm afraid not. <laughs> I'm going to look rather bemused at the moment and say, you'll have to explain who One Direction are. They are one of the winners of The X Factor. Uh, okay. So I can safely say I've never seen an episode of X Factor. Fair enough. So thank you ever so much for joining me again on Surge Radio. No, thank you. And, and thanks for your very wide range of questions which I thought were very interesting and, and very fair so thank you very much for that and I hope uh, they're of interest to your listeners. Thank you. That was the Vice-Chancellor interview. Don't forget you can catch up on all Surge Radio podcasts on our SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com 
forward slash surge radio. And if you'd like to get involved with student radio at the University of Southampton, you can join our surge radio members 2021 Facebook group or go to susu.org forward slash groups forward slash surge for more information.